so I actually learned that I feel like it was a craft article that told me super glue was used it was originally used for surgery like it was created specifically for surgical reasons mm-hmm. I mean it sounds right like if you think about it, if you're in like in the field or something if you have super glue it'll like like seal your skin together yeah I just I also I don't know I just it just feels like so chemically like I wouldn't think of putting that on a wound you know I I mean, if it's clean or if you do it right away, it would kind of seal everything in so you won't bleed as much and all that. I mean, it makes sense. Think about it. They have, um, it's like a dissolvable stitch. Oh, yeah, I guess that is true. I just, I don't know. I've just, I just, when I think of super glue, I think of my mom using it for like dishware that's broken to like piece it back together or like a coffee mug handle that fell off. You know, I uh, yeah, I think of my father telling me I'm not allowed to use it because I'll super glue my fingers together, yeah. and I always did. Well, nail polish remover. Yeah, I know nail polish remover. Speaking of nail polish remover, this is <laughs> Relic, the Lost Treasure podcast. It has nothing to do with uh, nails or no. varnish. No. Um, this episode is uh, the Trove, which is where. Mm-hmm myself maxwell and courtney who is the other voice talk about (laughs) what's going on in the world of history and archaeology uh with the sort of tendency towards like the unusual in a given week uh courtney say hi and tell us about what's going on with your finger and why we're talking about super glue hi guys yeah so i was doing a cook with me on my podcast instagram channel which i try to do more frequently and i was using a mandolin to slice veg (laughs) i was trying to use a mandolin to slice uh makes like vegetable noodles and i thought you were playing an instrument estelle i'm not gonna lie (laughs) when you said a mandolin i was like oh she plays no no string instruments at least but i was slicing a zucchini and i was trying to and i got a little too zealous and I thought I took my fingertip off. <laughs> and so for about the past week, week, week and a half, two weeks, I haven't really had use of my pointer finger. But I told Maxwell, I was like, I was so stupid because if you don't want to get stitches, if it's a like, a, a, if you can get the skin together, you can use super glue. And he forgot about that. That just, it like, just yeah. seems so like DIY, like survivalist. I just would never have thought. But then I did remember seeing probably like on a cracked article that super glue was created uh, for surgical reasons. Like that was its purpose. Like it, it was invented specifically to to help people in the medical field. So um, it's fine. We'll just someone turn, asked. Me. We'll just turn into a survivalist podcast. <laughs> yeah, someone did ask me. They're like, well. Because I, I was like, I have to figure out, like, like how the skin is to determine what's the next step. And someone's like, well, you know, you could always just sew it together. And I was like, nah. This is such a damning reflection of the American healthcare system where people are like, well, it'll be too expensive to go to the hospital. But you know what we could do? Let me just take out my sewing kit and, um, you know, just dig into your index finger. How about we how about we do that? Just a little cross stitch yeah. on your on your digits there. Or just, you know, take some super glue, you know, the stuff you use to, like, put together coffee mugs when they break, and then put that on your finger instead. It's just like, oh, I guess this is, 
this is where we are in 2020. Is this the first trove of 2020? Yeah. Oh, look at that. Because I was looking and it said we haven't been on Skype together since November like 1st because December for me working in a restaurant was a hellfire of working like six days a week for numerous hours constantly just I like I paused my own podcast accidentally because I was just I'd come home and just like turn on the Great British Bake Off and pass out. So both of my stories today have to deal with glaciers and ice and taking things out of ice, which sounds like the plot of, you know, a horror movie like The Thing or H.P. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft's The Mountains of at the Mountains of Madness, where, you know, we go into the Arctic and find frozen things that should have stayed frozen. Um, this her story sounds like it's it's of that ilk so they've discovered new viruses in a glacier in the tibetan plateau yay yeah so (laughs) get real (laughs) thrilled about that i just saw we have a new super bug so this is going along the lines with that i'm just gonna load up on garlic and hope that saves me (laughs) no one will date me but i'll be healthy So this comes from uh, a a Vice article written by Maddie Bender, but uh, they found bacteria dating to 15,000 years ago on the Tibetan Plateau. And this was about the same time when humanity was domesticating dogs. The ice entrapped millions of microscopic organisms. That's hard to say. So in 2015, scientists started to, from the U.S. and China, drilled 50 meters into the glacier to see what they could find, and they found viruses. And they are active viruses that came back to life. So these viruses aren't really a threat to anything more than bacteria. However, okay. uh, they point the, the same scientists pointed out to the fact that a few years ago, they were, I think in Siberia, in Russia, they accidentally released anthrax, like frozen anthrax in the ground, and it like killed a whole village. So uh, it is just as kind of Michael Crichton-y as it sounds. So a lot of them were kind of like, well, we shouldn't have to worry yet. But they also point to the fact that viruses from the tundra, specifically Siberia, which is usually mm-hmm. kind of in a state of permafrost, those viruses have, with global warming, reawoken. And basically, one of the scientists said, at a minimum, this, so this being the global warming reawaking viruses from frozen environs, says, at a minimum, this could lead to the loss of microbial and viral archives that could be diagnostic and informative of past Earth climate regimes. However, in a worst case scenario, this ice melt could release pathogens into the environment. And it says, yeah, the worst case scenario seemed to become a reality in 2016 when an outbreak of anthrax in Siberia killed over 2,000 reindeer and hospitalized 96 people. Anthrax spores can stay alive for years, and the outbreak is believed to have been caused when melting permafrost thawed a decades-old deer carcass infected with the bacteria. So that was one anthrax-infected deer that ended up killing 2,000 living reindeer and hospitalizing 96 humans. So that's what we have to look forward to in the coming years. There's just some probably like crazy virus in the Arctic that is gonna, you know, be reawoken because they can, because viruses, very non-complex organisms, they can just kind of exist in this frozen 
cryonic state until they're reawoken. Uh, it's like the it's, it's like the two thousand year old yeast that I talked about yes. uh, way back when that people could still make <laughs> bread with from Egypt from the pottery that they found in museums. Mm-hmm. It's like that. Uh, and what's interesting is as of last, the most recent week, there's this kind of new disease that's just popped up in China that no one kind of really knows where it came from. And it's starting to spread around. And it's just, I'm thinking, well, that's kind of close to the same part of the world where there's these glaciers and frozen things. And this story is from Tibet. So I guess what I'm just trying to say is we're all going to die from (laughs) a crazy epidemic. Uh, thoughts, feelings, comments, concerns. A lot of concerns. All of the above. All of the above. Because I know the same things happening in Alaska, and like it's yeah, I heard about the deer carcass. Like they're like yeah, I didn't realize they act like I knew they killed the reindeer. I didn't realize it. There was also a village nearby, so that's terrifying. The other terrifying thing about the permafrost melting is our seed reserves. So they basically take seeds from all the plants that we have on earth so in case something happens like a global catastrophe we have like base seeds and they keep them in i think it's really far north i can't remember what country it's oh, in. oh it's in it's like svalbard or norway or something mm. and it looks in this like really gnarly futuristic yeah kind of modern looking bunker like it looks like a place where you would store something for humanity in the far future yeah. It looks like it would be in a Marvel movie, yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, it looks like a S.H.I.E.L.D. But, headquarters. Yeah. And their problem is, like, because the permafrost is melting, we're getting these diseases coming back up. But also, like, they didn't expect that that land would, the per- that permafrost would melt because it's so far north. And so they're like, oh, what do we do? And so, like, so like now we're getting diseases. They've discovered ones we haven't seen before. And, like, it's going to contribute to probably, like, food shortages and all of this other, like, crazy weather we're having. And you're just like, everything is not fine. And I'm going to sit as I am in my blanket hoodie and uh, cry. I'm currently (laughs) on a country that's on fire. Well, less on fire than it was, which is good because of the rain. So I'm really happy about that. So your country, you're in a country that's on fire. I'm in an area that should have snow. And we have no snow. So, yeah. like, this is not fine. No, it's not fine. Um, can you give us a happier story? I can. So, I think you guys should tweet at Maxwell and tell him what you think our themes of are. Because we have both have themes for our recordings. Um, besides his tundra. So, they, the BBC posted that the mystery of... Napoleon's missing general was solved in a Russian discovery. So this is Napoleon's favorite general has officially been identified through DNA tests after a one-legged skeleton was found under a dance floor in Western Russia. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a lot to unpack in that one sentence. (laughs) So many things happen. So, and I'm sorry, I don't speak French. So this is going to get real weird. They confirmed that the skeleton belonged to Charles Etienne Goudin, um, as French archaeologists said. Charles Etienne Goudin? He was 44 when he was hit by a cannonball near the city of Smolensk. I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> it's, it's a comic, it's a slapstick way to die. It's a very, like, 
19th century way to die. Uh, during the French invasion of Russia during 1812, God. he went back to have his leg amputated, which is why he only had one leg, and died three days later from gangrene. Too bad he didn't have any super glue. He didn't have any super glue, and he didn't have any penicillin. And germ theory was just a dream. So, so this so general was he was he kind of missing from the annals of history? Like we knew that Napoleon had this, you know, mm-hmm. top brass that just there was no record of what happened to him. There was no record of where his body was because wow. his heart was taken back to France. They just cut out his heart. Okay, what? <laughs> I I have questions. <laughs> France. It's no. That's very much like the French, though. I mean, they just love to be dramatic. What is it? Poland has. There's a Polish, I believe, composer whose heart is buried in a like is in a cathedral, because it's it was like a romantic, I think, gesture. Yeah, they liked they liked being weird back in the day, didn't they? Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to figure out which Polish composer, but it was like a good thing, like where the rest of his body was and like the politics of moving his body. But so they discovered the skeleton in July. It was in a wooden coffin in a park beneath the building's foundation, and it was found by a team of French and Russian archaeologists. And I just, I'm sorry, my, I studied British 18th century, but really British history. And I just love, like, when I was doing my master's in my undergrad, they discovered two British kings in car parks. Yes, yes. One of them was King Richard, right? King Richard. One of the Richards? One of the dicks. yeah. Yeah, one of the dicks. Um, and another, I forget which other one, but yeah, like the one they kind of knew was there, Richard, they really like, it was one person's journey, which we should do a collab on that because that would be fantastic. But yeah, it's just, I love when they, they're like, we kind of think it's here da, 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 da. and then they find like, they're like, oh, these missing skeletons. But if we do Richard, we have to talk about the missing boys in the tower The boys in the tower there's a spooky installation in the tower of london that it's kind of it's like a projection in the room where they presumably were imprisoned and it's this and i'm I'm sure it's still there it didn't look like it was just kind of a temporary installation Mm -hmm. it's a projection that's kind of like richard gory i think it's richard gory one of the dicks it's uh (laughs) It's it's the kind of like like the the Gashly Crumb Tinies that like the creepy, um, oh he did the introduction to the the mis- to Masterpiece Theater's murder mystery uh, series on PBS. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like it's very it, Tim, it's Tim Burton adjacent. Is it Richard Armitage? No, it's Gory. It, like oh. he's a famous illustrator. Anyways, mm. uh, I'm sure some people know what I'm talking about. Not someone's, you, Courtney. Someone's screaming at us, you know, right now in their car. They're just like, um, yeah, no, probably. But but it was like that, and it was a narration of the princes of the tower, and they of course had like creepy British children narrating it in a whisper. It was like ah, this is the unsettling content I came for. Now I know uh, our next collab, what our next collab's going to be. It's just going to be an in-depth into Richard III and the the boys in the tower. It's But fine. done at ASMR. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely that way. I have, a, I have a very sweet endearment to British history, but I have not been to the Tower of London. I've been to London twice, and I have not been. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, it wasn't like the most mind-blowing historical place. It was, you know, there's a lot of tourists. It was cool enough. I just distinctly remember I was there with my my friend Colby, who ended mm-hmm. up 
not I mean stay there but he came back to England like a year later to to study where he's currently studying at the University of Manchester but I remember distinctly turning to him being like wow this is the oldest structure like I've ever I've ever been in and then the next day we went to Stonehenge and we did like the circle <laughs> where you could go inside the circle and then I was like actually just kidding this is the oldest structure I've ever been in and it's just so weird to think like the discrepancy between like the US and mm-hmm. um England where it's like old to the US is something from the 1800s old to the, like the the British is something from like the Norman th- conquest yeah like it, it's it's unfathomable and then then it's super weird in Australia where it's like things from colonial like old is from like the 1920s mm-hmm. but then there are like structures from like 80,000 years ago like in South Australia there or Victoria I'm I'm not sure where there's these uh dams that were used like stone dams to trap eels that like this really complicated system mm-hmm. created by uh, aboriginal settlers in that area like 80,000 years ago so it's this so now it's like this kind of the mix of both of those like both the U.S. and England where you've got like stuff that's like super recent and then stuff that's older than most religions uh anyways I feel like we're veering off topic yeah we veered really off topic no it's fine um it's really fascinating yeah my plan is if I go back to England Within this year, I'm going to make my sister go because they went to the tower without me. Oh, off with their head. She left them in the tower. Well, I was, I had a, I had to fly back to Spain to fly back to the U.S. So like that was the reason why, but I was still mad. (laughs) I was, I have my Anne Boleyn necklace, but I'm still mad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... Uh, Anne Boleyn. You should check it out, Maxwell got to listen to that beautiful story but Gudin's remain like the real search for them began in may of 2019 because this article is from november and was led by pierre malowinski who was a historian who got support from the kremlin so there's a lot of things happening and he was the one who really confirmed that the remains found in russia matched those of pierre cesar Gudin who Charles Etienne Goudin's brother and also a Napoleonic general. Because, you know, nepotism. Actually, Napoleon was less about nepotism than most people, but anyways. And it's 100% fit that there's no longer any doubt. So they stamped it. It's in they the history him. book. They found him. We got it. We got him. It, they dropped Perfect. the balloons all over the dig site. <laughs> Did they? I don't think they did. That seems like a really great way to contaminate your your dig site. I'm just thinking of John Oliver every time he goes, we got him! And then there's balloon drop and they're like, no, he's like, it's, we didn't get him. And there's like, oh, he's like, put the balloons back up. (laughs) So Uh. at the time of his death, uh, the 22nd of August, 1812, yeah, the French army decided to remove Goudin's heart and bury it in the chapel in Paris's Petit Lachaussee Cemetery. Um, do you want me to be? Do you want me to be that guy? Yeah, be that guy because I don't speak French. I, 
I actually, I was like, oh, I haven't heard of this ceremony. And then I realized it's, I've actually been there. I've been to that cemetery. It's where they've got Oscar Wilde and Chopin buried and a lot of other people. I think Susan Sontag is there as well. Uh, is it's that per, where? It's, it's Père Lachaise or Père Lachaise. <laughs> so I might probably not pronouncing it the right either. But I was just like, huh, which one? Because there's like only like six cemeteries in Paris and they're all very historic. So um, is that sorry where... for being that No, be that guy. Is that where um, Jim Morrison is buried? Yes. I was actually going to say, yes, it's, <laughs> that is where he's, yeah, it's where he's buried. And then Os- he's buried there. And then Oscar Wilde has, like, the tomb covered in mm-hmm. um, lipstick from people who, like, kissed it, which the people are not happy about because it's defacing the tomb. But, yeah, there's a lot of famous, a lot of famous dead people in that cemetery. Let's not lie, Oscar Wilde having his tomb cover- covered in lipstick is probably the most Oscar Wilde thing ever. Oh, it's exactly what he wants. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's, so- like, old embarrassing photos of me in that cemetery that I could share from when I was, like, a very grubby-looking 17-year-old. I love it. So they use the memoirs of Louis Nicolas Davot, another French general from the same era who organized... Boudin's funeral and described the location of his burial. So they went back to primary sources. They then used another uh, witness's account to direct them directly to that coffin. So they're like, okay, we have the general area. <laughs> they have another account. They're, they're, if you love true crime, they triangulated the coffin from primary sources. So it was a giant nerd fest to triangulate the sources. So who is Goodin, the general? He's an aristocrat by birth, which is funny because he survived the French Revolution. Hmm. And he's a veteran of both the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. He attended the same military school as Napoleon and is believed to be one of the French emperor's favorite generals. And that is the end of our favorite French skeleton now. Our favorite French skeleton. I mean, there's a He's lot to choose from. French skeleton. Uh, okay. He's so many skeletons. the podcast's official French <laughs> skeleton in honor. Skeleton. We'll find some other. I, I feel like I always give you skeletons. I think I gave you a skeleton last time. Like, I've given you several skeletons to I'm choose I'm running from. out of room. Courtney, <laughs> you really, I don't have much space here to begin with. And now there's just a bunch of bones and people are starting to ask questions. <laughs> Which the question is, how am I avoiding the shipping from America to Australia? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's really interesting. I mean, that's, it just, I, it, it kind of gives me a sense of hope in a way that all of these old, really old, like truly ancient mysteries are being solved more or less in 2020 or to 2019 as the case may be. The last few years. It's... I don't know. It just makes me, it gives me hope that like a lot of other old school mysteries will get solved. Like, like finding Amelia Earhart's plane. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I'm pretty sure they never found the plane. They, uh, just other things. They've, they've reopened the Diet Love Pass. Again. Oh, that's the... never going to get solved. That's just too weird. I'm sorry. Not to be a pessimist. If that gets solved, you have to uh, spoop Neon, a.k.a. spoop our court Neon, because she Oh, loves I know. I am actually going to be doing an episode with them really soon, which is... I'm so excited because I haven't seen them in years. I actually saw other Courtney, who we are referring to as other Courtney, 
Well, the, we, it, it, whenever the other Courtney is not present, they are the other Courtney. So sometimes you're the other Courtney. Uh, so I, I am Courtney, according to and, Lindsay from 33% and then she's Pulp, because I'm Colt. Because okay, she's yeah. Spoopney. All right. Yeah. I actually, I saw her in person. Like, I've I've met her. She is a real person. She's lovely. She's great sense of style. Uh, I met her in Los Angeles. And I'm just so sad because you guys all got to meet up. Yeah. And I've just been in Ohio. <laughs> yeah, no. Um it, it was and yeah, no, and I met Lindsay too. It was pretty great. Uh we actually went by the uh what was it? What's the spooky Elisa Lamb Hotel? The one where Oh <gasps> yes. Why can't I think of it? I can only think of the court the the fake one from American Horror Story, the Cortez. Do you know but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The Cecil. Listeners yeah, the Cecil. Yeah, we actually like went. We went by. We like looked at the um the water towers mm-hmm. and we're like oh oh, and it was closed. I don't think it's. I think it's permanently closed. Um, yeah. No, it, they redid it. It's um. Oh, did they something on Maine? Yeah, it's yes, in- stay on Maine. No, no, it was we. It was closed. Like we went up to it and like not not not, not to shut you down. Like I know mm-hmm. what you're saying, but like that the stay on Maine was actually closed, and I don't I don't know if it's permanently closed or not or what's going on because there's such notoriety there. Um, yeah, I think the whole thing now is you have to have because I'm an avid listener of last podcast on the left. And when Henry went like you basically now have to ha- had to have a reservation, but it's also in like um, base where a lot of home- there's a, I think it's Skid Row in Los Angeles. So it's not the best area to be in. So it might have struggled without making statements about mm-hmm. homelessness and urban decay from a city I haven't had the pleasure of living in. There was a, there's a lot of homeless, like tent communities without the, throughout that area. Uh, it is a huge problem in Los Angeles and it was, it feels, it felt different than, than New York when it, when it came to the homeless uh, it was really sad. I don't mean to like you know crap on LA. It's a great city, no. but it was it was very stark and it was very confronting and it was very sad. So um, it's just the west and- the west coast in the US because of their temperate climate kind of deal. Like they don't have the big change of seasons. I've noticed like when I was in Portland and really living on the west coast, it was. I mean, I've been to Chicago. I've been to New York. It is very stark compared to like the midwest or the east coast i feel like in new york and chicago and the east coast it's because of the weather you really can't have that situation i mean there's a lot of problems in america right now it's not we could just spend a whole episode on like economic disparity and sad things but i don't feel qualified to talk about that other than i'm very you know obviously sympathetic to those issues anyways um now you have more patreon content yeah, uh, well, I've got one more. Uh, okay. Do you have another one, or do you want to save it for? I have another. I have another the- on theme one. Yes. Okay, I'm okay with this episode being maybe a little bit longer. Okay. Than normal. Um. So this is about newly discovered mammoth remains. Love it. So this is this is also from Cy- the, the same part of the world, roughly. Tibet was the other one. This is Siberia. So the Siberian Times reports that the butchered remains of a woolly mammoth discovered on eastern Siberia's Kotelny Island have been dated to 21,000 years ago. 
which is not that long, um, by scientists at Tokyo's GK University School of Medicine. Kultani Island is located in the area known as Beringia, the submerged land bridge that once Ooh. connected Siberia, uh, yeah, Siberia and North America, so the Bering Strait. There were, you know, a significant amount of marks and cut marks and chips on the bones, which makes it it, it, it makes it very obvious that this mammal carcass was uh, remains from a hunting incident that this animal was consumed, like the flesh was mm-hmm. taken off and it was hunted by ancients. Uh, and they think that the date of this carcass by like dating it, it kind of points to a split in the populations in that area from around 25,000 years ago. Yeah. And more or less, the discovery of this mammoth on that land bridge area helps us understand when people came into North America from Siberia. Because that's, that's the major theory of, like, why is North America, po- like, how did it first become populated by the ancestors of Native Americans was this, they came over through the land bridge on the Bering Strait. So basically, Alaska... Using modern terms, Alaska was once physically connected to Russia, for people who don't know. Um, And then over time, as the waters rose, the land bridge collapsed and people could no longer, you know, cross between. But that's essentially how they they think people came over. Um, And that's only 21, within the last 21,000 years. Which is mind-blowing when you think of... Yeah. That it's that recent? Yeah. Um... So that's like a that's a pretty big discovery. Um, now, here's the other thing about mammoths that I think is absolutely fascinating. Uh, their their remains are so well preserved that people are trying to introduce the the idea of cloning them, like taking the DNA and putting it in elephant DNA because apparently it's a very close match. And there's all sort of ethical implications surrounding that. Just just a few just yeah i mean mostly that it's like there's the only use would be to basically put them into a zoo and it doesn't seem right but you know we think of woolly mammoths as being Mm -hmm. something that like stalked around the ice age or you know in line with clearly in line with humans like humans were around when mammoths were around but it's believed that a population existed as far back on an isolated island um, 10,000, uh, less than 10,000 years ago until 1650 BC. So it's actually, they haven't been extinct for that long. Oh no, they haven't. And it's pretty one of, so recent, I guess. And scientists also believe that they theoretically shouldn't have gone extinct, that it was just kind of a, a series of bad luck that theoretically they could have survived well past that period. I mean, they'd probably be distinct nowadays. Let's be real, but humans love hunting things. Yes. I mean, uh, a lot of things have vanished because of overhunting. What's interesting though. And I discussed this, I did a whole episode on cryptids that might, that might actually turn out to be extant animals with Kate from strange animals podcast and mammoth was one of them. It's, it's something that just is like a weird topic that fascinates me because mm-hmm. there's all these stories from like the late 1800s of people in Siberia or Alaska reporting mammoths. Uh, and a lot of 
you know, indigenous tribes also reporting encounters with mammoths well past the the time they were said to have died out and in isolated areas where theoretically they could still exist. Yeah. So unfortunately, that past the 1800s, you don't really see any. But I don't know. It'd be really cool if like there's maybe just a small population. I mean, it'd be really cool if any animal that was extinct was still around. But but yeah. Yeah, they. That's fascinating because yeah, I believe they they've seen evidence that the Tasmanian devil or what is it? There's a small population it was that they thought was extinct, and they've caught it on uh, game cameras. So it would be completely possible that if you're in a isolated enough location, that we wouldn't know that they've they're still there. The Tasmanian devil is. Is and I've seen them before in in zoos, but they're they're they are and they are endangered. I think what you're referring to is the Tasmanian tiger or the thylacin. Yes, which I also discuss. I also discussed that with Kate on our cryptids episode, which was so much fun. Uh, shout out to Strange Animals podcast. Give it a listen. Kate's a lovely human being. They there is a guy now who's going to go out into rural Tasmania to try to actually he's confident that he could find proof of the continued existence of the tasmanian tiger because tasmania is a really rural i've never been i Mm -hmm. haven't been there yet it's it's not connected by land to the rest of australia it's on an island but it is really rural and covered in forest so theoretically something could still exist there and it wasn't that long that Tasmanian tigers died out. We have them on camera. Like, we have, like, footage of them in captivity from oh, yeah. the 20s. So it's it hasn't been that long. I would. I really hope they still exist. That would be, a, I mean, you know, be that'd amazing. be amazing. <laughs> yeah, it would be so cool. So my next story goes back to the American Revolutionary War. And this is from the Associated Press by the author is only give, given as uh, Ridgefield from what I can find on the article. And this is... Maybe a pen name? Hmm? Maybe a, a nom de plume? A nom de plume? Yes. Or they just put his last name and there's no connecting first name. So uh, They... Oh, wait, no, I messed up. Uh, the skeletal remains uh, in Ridgefield, uh, Connecticut, are thought to belong to revolutionary soldiers. So more bones. So this is from my mm-hmm. hometown, essentially. Yes. So, in a basement of an 18th century house being renovated in Connecticut, they discovered several skeletal remains. And they're like, through dating and stuff, they were like, okay, this could be Revolutionary War, which New England loves it. They're like, let's put it up everywhere. We'll put a plaque. We'll put a sign. We'll put a banner. I mean, I think Connecticut's like vacation motto is still revolutionary. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, Connecticut's having a moment. It popped up in a famous, an- like Hartford popped up in a famous anime recently. Oh, really? So, yeah, like with really detailed, accurate art- artwork of the city. Anyways, go on. So, Connecticut Office of State Archaeology was notified through the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner about several skeletal remains found under the Ridgefield home in December 2nd, as uh, the News Times of Danbury reported. And so they, they're like, okay, we'll send out some archaeologists, as you should do. So Nicholas Bellatoni 
continued excavations and got two more skeletons. I don't know how many were originally found or they just found bones. They wasn't really clear. Um, they, it seems like they found a total of three robust, quote, robust male men, adult male, Ooh. adult men <laughs> lying in an east-west orientation in the ground that appears to be haphazardly dug, unquote. So that's from the archaeologist. They were probably militiamen. And his team believes that they were probably revolutionary soldiers based on five buttons found at the spot. There was no weapons found in the grave at all. So, but I mean, if you think about the Revolutionary War in America, kind of makes sense. Weapons were valuable. You're not going to bury them with them. You're like, uh, no, we can't import no, these anymore. Use them. So Ridgefield for. Because I looked it up because I actually didn't know where it was. That's closer. To, if you think of Connecticut as having that tail that mm-hmm. goes into like Fairfield's area that goes into New York, mm-hmm. that Ridgefield is in there in the closest major city is Danbury, which to this day I am convinced doesn't exist. I've never <laughs> been there and I lived in Connecticut for most of my life. Mm-hmm. It's in the east. It's it's like nowhere I would have really gone um the thing about connecticut is if you grow up there you tend to kind of stay close to your hometown or go into one of the cities for like work commuting or like going to like one of the the mall like the centers of commerce but it's mostly covered in forest it's all mostly forest it's all small towns there's really no transportation system so you could grow up in connecticut and like it's not uncommon to meet someone from a town only an hour away and you've never heard of it before so I think that isolation also could contribute to the fact that, you know, there might be skeletons just sitting around in people's basements and we just don't know because the right people haven't been informed. Yeah. It's a very strange state. Which, I mean, so. it makes sense because, like, you know, they had to talk to the Office of Archaeology, like the State Office of Archaeology, and because the chief medical examiner was like, they were like, hey, we found a skeleton. And they're like, we should check that out. Yeah. Because clearly they, the good thing is the medical examiner was like, this doesn't seem to be recent. Um, There was the Battle of Ridgefield, April 1777. So like there was a revolutionary battle there. Um, Probably should have learned this in school and I probably did and just don't remember it. I mean, I don't remember half the things I learned about Ohio history. (laughs) Ohio has history? (laughs) Uh, Besides having like depending on how you count, the most presidents slash the most astronauts, not really. <laughs> and probably the river that caught on the fire on fire the most, but I mean. Oh, yeah. So uh. as of December, they hadn't confirmed if uh, confirmed the find, but it would be the first time revolutionary era soldiers from a field of battle have been recovered in Connecticut, according to the archaeologists. Really? That's interesting. Uh The house was originally built around 1790, according to Shannon Murphy, or Dumphy, who is the president of the Ridgefield Historical Society. And, you know, they just kind of, like, have they've done additions, but they just hadn't disturbed the burial site. So they had basically built over this. So I'm guessing they were digging out the basement, and that's how they found it. But there was, like, at the time, there was no real extensive search and there doesn't seem to be an an update huh but it's just kind of fascinating that they're like people have been living in this house and they're probably like my house is haunted i wonder why and no one realizes that there's soldiers it's just in the basement (laughs) 
bones of dead soldiers in the basement. Yeah, that does sound like Connecticut. Um, wow. So this has been an interesting episode. Um, really diverse breadth of topics. Um, where can people find you? You can find me um, on Facebook and Twitter at The Domestic Podcast and on Instagram at The Cult of Domesticity, which if you love cooking or crafting, I'm going to try to do more stories about that because I have several craft projects I need to get on because people are getting married. The domestic domestic part of The Cult of Domesticity. Yeah, besides the reclaiming of the term. Yes, the domestic arts is on Instagram. Right. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. We have a Facebook group now, which is exciting. Just mm-hmm. type in Relic the Lost Treasure Podcast in Facebook and you'll find it. Yeah. All right. Well, peace. Peace.